Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. So we'll get into some bigger details with the Patriots in terms of this team in particular in just a little bit. We'll chat with Kyrie Thompson from WEI in just a little bit. We'll get into Mac and the offensive line and all the issues with the play calling. So I did want to start with a bigger, broader conversation with this Patriots team. And one of the things that I remember is when the Patriots drafted Mac with the 15th overall pick. One of the things that I thought was, okay, this is going to be awesome because Belichick now has a quarterback on a rookie contract. And what we've seen throughout the NFL, especially over the past decade or so, is these teams that have quarterbacks on rookie contracts, a lot of them are making deep runs into the postseason and into the Super Bowl. And if those teams are doing it and if those organizations are doing it, why wouldn't the Patriots with Bill Belichick be able to do it? So I looked at this in terms of the last 10 seasons. So if you look at the last 10 seasons and the Super Bowl quarterbacks, so you go back to 2012, it's Flacco and Kaepernick. Both those guys on rookie contracts. Alex Smith was on a contract three for 27, so not top of the market money. Kaepernick ended up taking that job. Flacco, remember, famously bet on himself. Russell Wilson, Peyton Manning, obviously Wilson was on a rookie contract. Brady versus Wilson in 14. Wilson was still on his rookie contract. Manning versus Cam in 15. Cam was on his rookie contract. Brady versus Ryan in 16. Neither one on their rookie contracts. Foles versus Brady in 17. Remember, Foles is on a backup contract worth about five and a half mil per season. Brady, of course, not. But Wentz had really led that team to the number one seed in the NFC that season. He was arguably the MVP prior to the injury. So that's another one. Brady versus Goff in 18. Goff still on his rookie deal. Mahomes, Jimmy. In 19, Mahomes on his rookie deal. Brady versus Mahomes. Mahomes on his rookie deal. And then last year, Stafford versus Burrow. Burrow, of course, on his rookie contract. So the reason I point that out is we've seen so many teams have that success when they have the rookie quarterback because you can build up the rest of the roster. So if you run through that list that I just did, 10 of the last 20 participants in the Super Bowl have been on rookie contracts or backups. So that's 50%. That's a big number. If you take Tom Brady out of the equation, right, because you're never going to duplicate what you had with Brady because he's the best player in the sport and he's taking less money than top of the market quarterbacks. That takes out 14, 16, 17, 18. I mean, we were really spoiled. And then 20, of course, with Tampa. So that means in the non-Brady division, guys that were not on their rookie contracts, it's 10 of the 15 participants were on their rookie contracts. Just five weren't outside of Tom Brady. So that's what? Over 66%. 
So Brady's in his own category. You're never going to see that again. So when you look at this and you look at the other guys that actually made the Super Bowl not on their rookie contracts, it's Manning's MVP season in 13 where he broke Tom's record. Very difficult to duplicate that, obviously. And Peyton's second appearance, he was fucking awful. Remember, he could barely throw the ball. He had got benched for Brock Osweiler. And that was the no-fly zone defense, which for a single-season defense, you could argue that's one of the best we've seen. I mean, that defense was ridiculous, especially for the era, right, when you had Von Miller and Malik Jackson, DeMarcus Ware, you had Aqib Tlaib, Chris Harris Jr. So it took them to have that great defense. Matt Ryan, when he went to the Super Bowl, his MVP season, great scheme with Shanahan and arguably one of, if not the best receiver of his generation in Julio Jones. So you had a great system, great offensive play caller and a great receiver. Jimmy Garoppolo had Kyle Shanahan, an incredible defense with the Nick Bosa in his rookie season, the DeForest Buckners of the world, he was still there, Eric Armstead, et cetera. You also had a great offensive system with Shanahan, and you had George Kittle. So you had a great offense, and you had a great defense. You had everything you possibly could need to make it to the Super Bowl. And then Stafford last year, you had Sean McVay. You had a loaded roster that featured one of the greatest defensive players we've ever seen in Aaron Donald. You had Jalen Ramsey. Cooper Cup won the triple crown at receiver. They added Odell Beckham Jr. prior to him going down in the Super Bowl. And remember, the GM was all in. He said, fuck the picks. That's the T-shirt that he wears around. So unless you have Brady or Peyton or the best roster in the NFL and a genius level coach like we've seen with Shanahan and with McVay, it's very difficult to make it to the Super Bowl with these contracts where quarterbacks are making a ton of money. So Rodgers in the last 10 years hasn't made it to the Super Bowl. Drew Brees in his final 10 years didn't make it to the Super Bowl. And Russell Wilson hasn't made it to the Super Bowl since he got paid a big contract. So the reason I point this out is we may think this window for Mac Jones is wide open, but it really isn't. Because do you ever see Mac being on the Peyton Manning level or based on where this roster is at right now, do you ever see Mac being on a team that has clearly the best roster in the NFL, like Jimmy Garoppolo had a couple of years ago with the Niners in 19, or like Stafford had last year with the Rams? Based on the way things have transpired, I can't envision that happening. So I wanted to go through the 2020 and 2021 drafts and the quarterbacks and judge each situation and see where Mac stands with those guys. Now, I want to be abundantly clear on this. This is not me saying, is Mac better than Zach Wilson or Justin Fields or Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, et cetera. This is me comparing the situations, the infrastructure of the team, the rosters, the coaching, all that. It's the quarterback excluded. If you were just going to take a quarterback on a rookie contract, put him in this place, where are the best situations? So the first rounders in 2020 and 2021, it's, of course, Joe Burrow in Cincinnati, Tua in Miami, Herbert with the Chargers, you have Trevor Lawrence with the Jaguars, Zach Wilson with the Jets, Trey Lance with the Niners, Justin Fields with the Bears, and of course, Mack with the Patriots. So I separated these into tiers. The top tier is one through three. So number one on this list to me is unequivocally the Niners, where Trey Lance is there. And it may seem crazy because the Bengals made the Super Bowl last year, but I felt like that was more about the actual talent of the quarterback than it was about the infrastructure. So think about this situation that the Niners have. They just lost in the NFC Championship game last year to the Rams. They should have won that game if Tart doesn't drop the interception with Jimmy Garoppolo. We all know Jimmy Garoppolo is nowhere near an elite quarterback. So first of all, you have Shanahan, who was the OC when Matt Ryan made it to the Super Bowl. He was the coach, of course, when Jimmy Garoppolo made it to the Super Bowl in 19. So you know the system works for pretty much every quarterback. It's a quarterback-friendly system. And then you look at the fact that Pro Football Focus had Trent Williams rated as their top player. So you have an elite left tackle, the best left tackle in the game. You have Debo Samuel, who could be a running back or receiver, just the ultimate weapon. You have George Kittle. Brandon Ayuk's an absolute stud. And then you have a loaded defense with the Nick Boses of the world, the Fred Warners of the world. So the team is ready to win a Super Bowl right now. They almost got there with Jimmy Garoppolo last year. So just from an infrastructure, a roster structure, the Patriots are nowhere close to that. So that would be number one on my list in terms of the quarterbacks on rookie contracts. Number two would be the Bengals, as we mentioned. Now, granted, they've already been there. They're a year ahead in the pa of the Patriots in sort of the rebuild, if you will. But look at what they did. The first year when they draft Burrow, they also drafted a receiver at the top end of the second round in T. Higgins. T. Higgins last year, 77.9 yards per game, six touchdowns. Pat's leading receiver, Jacoby Myers, 50.9 yards per game. So their second best receiver in Cincinnati averaged 27 more receiving yards per game than the guy that led the Patriots. That's their second best receiver. 
They also have Jamar Chase, fourth in the NFL last year, with 1,455 yards as a rookie. So they double down. They get an elite receiver, or I should say a really good receiver at the top end of the second round. And then the next year, they draft Jamar Chase with the fourth overall pick, and their offense goes to a totally different level. He catches 13 touchdown passes. And then they have a really good running back in Mixon. The Patriots have good running backs, but Mixon could do a little bit more in terms of catching the ball out of the backfield. backfield. So you already have two really good receivers. You have a good running back. And then this offseason, you say, okay, we'll draft the weapons. Okay, we want elite guys. So we're going to draft those guys. We're not going to wait till free agency. And the one question you had about this team was the offensive line. They go out, they sign a guy like Alex Kappa. They added Lyle Collins and Ted Karras from the Patriots goes over there. So, yes, they're a year ahead of the Patriots in terms of where they're at in the rebuild. But I like their order of operations more where they get the elite guys. The Patriots don't have any elite weapons whatsoever, and they have questions on the offensive line. The Bengals feel like, okay, we may have shored up our offensive line, and we know they're going to score like crazy anyway because they have those elite weapons. So just from if you're plucking any quarterback and you're saying on the rookie contract, go to this team, that's a much better situation than the Patriots. That brings me to the third team on the list, the Chargers with Herbert. Again, you look at this team right now. They have a really good weapon in Keenan Allen. I don't know if anybody likes Keenan Allen more than me than maybe Julian Edelman because Edelman ranked him like the third best receiver in the NFL. A little rich for me, but I really like Allen. And then Mike Williams, 15.1 yards per reception, nine touchdowns last season, really good player. So you have two good receivers, two receivers that are better than anybody on the Patriots. And you have Austin uh, Eckler, rather, who's really good catching the ball to the backfield. And then you look at over the past few years, they've added to that line a question with the Patriots right now, Zion Johnson. And they drafted Rashawn Slater two years ago. And that defense, it's kind of disappointing that they weren't great last year because Brandon Staley went over there. That is one of my concerns with that team is it felt like last year with Staley, he was too aggressive. Like, I love the fact that he was aggressive, but he just went over the top with it. But anyway, you look at that defense. So they add J.C. Jackson, who, yeah, had surgery, but he's going to be back this season. Then you have Khalil Mack, who you added to this team, and that's already with Joey Bosa, Derwin James, Asante Samuel Jr. So you have potential to be an elite defense with the Chargers based on the personnel. We'll see if the coach gets it done, but you have elite personnel on the defensive side, and offensively, you got more than enough weapons. So that was the first tier I had of quarterbacks in terms of the situation. If you put a quarterback on a rookie contract in those situations, those are the top three teams to me in terms of the ability to win based on everything around the quarterback. And then I got to the next tier, uh, tier rather, four, five, six, and seven. Now, eight, I'll tell you already, it's the Bears. I mean, I don't think there's going to be much debate there. But if you look at this list, these teams are close together, so you could argue. But this is the order I came up with. I put the Dolphins in front of the Patriots. And the reason I did that is pretty damn simple. You look at, yeah, there's question marks with the coach because he's in his first year. And Brian Flores was really good for Miami. We know he swept the Patriots last season. And we also know that he beat the Patriots Brady's final season. Remember when Devontae Parker, ironically, ripped up Stephon Gilmore and the Patriots lost the number one seed, or I should say they lost the bye in the postseason because of that game. So Flores was really good against the Patriots. So that could be a step down. But if you look at the offense, yeah, they've had line issues, but they go out and they sign one of the best left tackles in the game in Teron Armstead. And then they added Tyree Kill to Jalen Waddell. Jalen Waddell was already better than anybody on the Patriots receiving core. And they added Tyree Kill on top of that. And those guys are yak monsters. They're quarterback friendly because they can do so much after the catch. And here's the other thing you have to look at it from the Dolphins perspective here. If the Dolphins don't make the playoffs, they're moving on from the quarterback. That tells you that the roster is ready to win right now. They feel like their roster is good enough for this quarterback to win with. So right then and there, just based on that, knowing how good the roster is, knowing how many weapons Tua has, it should tell you that this team is set up from an infrastructure perspective, from a roster perspective, they're set up better than the Patriots to win right now. So I put the Patriots fifth on the list. And like like I said, this is about the team. It's about the roster. It's not about the quarterback. I like Mac a lot more than Tua. That's not the exercise, though. It's the team. The offensive line for the Patriots right now has been a struggle. And we, quite frankly, didn't see that coming. Maybe some of you did. I didn't. I didn't see that being an issue. The defense, is it going to be elite? No chance. It took a step back, right? You lost J.C. Jackson. I love Barmore. I think he's going to have a massive season. I like Judon. Those guys are good players. But it's not like we're talking about the team we talked about earlier, the Niners, where you look at that and you say that defense is going to be really good. The Chargers, they have stars all over the place. The Patriots aren't there. And you look at the Patriots' weapons, and we keep referencing this, but if you look at them, can you unequivocally tell me that any one of these Patriots receivers, 
is going to have 1,000 yards next season. Any one of them. You can't. And with these other teams, a bunch of those other guys, you can. That's the problem, right? You don't know who it's going to be. You don't know who Mac's going to depend on on a game-to-game basis. Just look at Jacoby Myers last year. And this isn't meant to be an indictment on the guy, but he had 83 receptions and he didn't even have 1,000 yards. That's awfully difficult to do. So you don't have an elite weapon. And then is there anybody on the Patriots right now that you look at and you say, he has a chance to be an all-pro besides Matthew Slater as the special teamer? Is there anybody there? No, maybe Barmore down the road and Judon, but that's a really tough position to get all-pro at edge. There's so many good edge rushers in the league. I just can't envision that happening for Judon. So this Patriots roster without a top weapon, with a struggling offensive line, with an elite defense, or I should say really without an elite defense and no potential to get there, the only argument to put the Patriots higher on this list is Bill. But Bill's coaching staff is not the same. We talked about it in the bonus pod where Patricia's doing like a million freaking jobs right now. So the Pats to me on this list in terms of the teams with rookie quarterbacks or on rookie contracts, I should say, in the 2020 and 2021 drafts, they're fifth to me out of these eight teams in terms of their ability to actually build around the quarterback and have a chance to actually make it to the Super Bowl like we've seen so many other teams do with quarterbacks on rookie deals. I put the Jets and Zach Wilson six on this list, and I really like a lot of what the Jets have done for Zach Wilson. Back-to-back years, draft a weapon, Elijah Moore, who I think is going to have an outstanding season. Garrett Wilson is an absolute freak show. That guy's ridiculous. I like Tyquan Thornton a lot, who's injured, of course, to start the season, but Garrett Wilson's on a different level. Then you added in free agency, CJ Uzama and at the tight end position. So you add another guy in the draft and at the cornerback position in Sauce Gardner. From a talent perspective, the Jets have more blue chippers than the Patriots. They really do. I just can't put the Jets ahead of the Patriots because the ownership has been an issue there with the Jets and it's the Jets. I just, I can't see the Jets being better than the Patriots in terms of everything seems to go wrong with them at some point. They've really only had one good run over the past couple of years, those Rex Ryan years. So I just, in good faith, I had to put the Jets behind the Patriots, even though I like a lot of what they've done. I put the Jaguars in at seven. I like Trevor Lawrence, of course, but that's not the conversation. It's about the team. I like, of course, how could you not bring in Doug Peterson over Urban Meyer? He had Carson Wentz playing at an MVP level in year two, and he beat the Patriots with Nick Foles in the Super Bowl. So the guy can coach. I know it ended poorly in Philly, but clearly he can coach offense, heavy RPO stuff. But then you think about it, Trent Bulky's still there. If the guy signed Christian Kirk to four years and 72 mil. You feel like they're going to have to move on from that guy at some point. I don't know why they didn't already, but it just feels like that roster is not great right now. And you also look at the bulky situations. I could not put them over the Patriots. And then eight, obviously, is Fields. I mean, the team willingly traded for Nikhil Harry. And look, it's a seventh round pick, but you traded for fucking Nikhil Harry. So (laughs) you thought maybe he could help you. You have a new GM in Ryan Poles and Matt Eberflus is in his first year there in Chicago. And they didn't pick the quarterback. So Are they building around the quarterback? Do they want the quarterback to succeed? I'm sure in some sense they do, but it would be the worst thing in the world if the GM of the team that could be the worst team in the NFL gets the number one pick or the number two pick and drafts a quarterback number one or two in the draft. I legitimately feel bad for Fields because I feel like he's been put in an absolutely atrocious situation. But just circling back to the whole exercise, the reason I do this is these teams with rookie quarterbacks, I gave you the numbers. I gave you the guys that made runs. They have a ton of success. And my hope that drafting a quarterback at 15th overall is, hey, Bill can do this. Bill can get you there, right? Because it's Bill Belichick. The Pats did the toughest thing, at least from my perspective. I think they hit on Mac at 15. I'm not saying you have a guy that's going to be in the family photo of the best three to five quarterbacks in the NFL on any particular season or in any particular season, but you have a guy. Mac Jones is a good player. And the issue is, I feel like the rest of the team and the rest of the roster and the questions we have surrounding the coaching staff. That's the issue. It's everything but the quarterback, right? So here's the thing I would say is based on where the Patriots are at with Mac year two of his rookie contract, do you see the Patriots close to a Super Bowl this year? No. How about next year? No. And look, I get they have money to spend next offseason, but we saw that last time Bill had a spending spree. Yeah, Judon worked out, born the below the market deal, if you will, or under the radar deal. He worked out. But if the rest of the guys really worked out in terms of those signings, So they're in danger, and this is what irritates me and pisses me off about this whole situation. They're in danger of wasting these years with a quarterback on his rookie deal. That's where the Patriots are at right now. It seems like most teams with these second-year quarterbacks, they take a leap forward in year two as a team. 
But the Pats, they're not on that trajectory based on where the roster is at right now. My thing is, I believe in the player. I believe in Mac Jones. And here's the interesting part of this. I could see Mac Jones having a much better season in year two than he had in year one as an individual player and the team actually taking a significant step in the wrong direction. And what we've seen recently, it's the opposite for these teams. Jared Goff made the playoffs in 2017. Carson Wentz, MVP-ish season in 2017. Joe Burrow went to the Super Bowl last year. And Lamar Jackson was the MVP of the NFL in 2019. Yeah, a lot of it has to do, well, except in the case of Goff, a lot of it has to do, because Wentz was really good early in his career, and then he just completely fell off a cliff. But a lot of this has to do with these players were really good, but also the structure and the roster of the team was really good. And I just don't see that with the Patriots. And it's a shame because this formula of winning at a high level with a quarterback on his rookie contract, we've been seeing it year after year after year after year. And to think that the Patriots are not in that type of position, it's really fucking aggravating. I never thought I would say this, but this is where the Patriots are at. They have found the quarterback, but they don't have the surrounding pieces for the player. We here locally have made fun of teams for years for drafting a quarterback and have had nobody around him. The Patriots, it seems like, are in a very similar position right now. All right, coming up next, we'll chat with Kyrie Thompson from WEI. We'll get into everything going on with the Patriots as they get ready for the first game of the season after a really tough performance in their final preseason game. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Brian Barrett with you. Joining us now from WEI and the first in Foxborough podcast, it is Kyrie Thompson. Kyrie, what's up, man? It's all good, my man. I'm out here uh, at, at a local park in Jamaica Plain, uh, enjoying some uh, Brazilian music. Um, I'm pretty sure that it's funny because it's like, yeah, they're definitely not speaking Spanish. That must be Portuguese because I can't understand a word of it. <laughs> well, hey, man, thanks for stepping away for a couple of minutes to talk some Patriots because Friday night, it wasn't pretty Kyrie and the offensive line. We know that it's been an issue all training camp into the preseason. But the biggest thing that jumped out to me Friday night was the fact that you have Patricia coaching the offensive line and calling the plays. And then in between series, he's not with Mac. He's with the offensive line. I just have a very difficult time seeing how this is going to work when we get closer to the regular season. You know, it's interesting. Before the season, I talked with uh, Doug Kide of Pro Football Focus and, and a couple of other people on, on the side. And basically the consensus was Matt Patricia is going to be your de facto offensive coordinator. He's going to call the plays. It's been like that throughout training camp. Yeah, they sprinkled in some Joe Judge there to give you a little banana in the tailpipe um, and sprinkled in a little bit of Bill Ch Belichick in uh, two-minute drills and joint practices. But it's been Patricia largely calling the plays throughout this entire summer. And my understanding based on conversations I had was that it was probably going to be Billy Yates, the assistant offensive line coach, getting a, getting the main job of coaching the offensive line on game day. And that's how it would be sometimes during practice when you'd have competitive seven on sevens, Patricia would leave the offensive line and Billy Yates and the assistant coaches would handle that while Matt Patricia would call plays with the offense during competitive seven on sevens. It's just strange to me that you wouldn't, practice that arrangement every single time in preseason if that's going to be your thing and i mean we've heard it from from several people just be like there's no way you can be an offensive line coach and an offensive coordinator in game like that i mean it's much easier to do that when you are the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach because you're spending all your time with the quarterback anyway that's what josh mcdaniels did so I, I just don't see how that's tenable. They've been kind of playing around with a couple of different arrangements of coaching on the sideline during preseason, but I would hope that when this thing gets going, Billy Yates is going to be on the sideline the entire time with the offensive line because they could use all the help they can get right now. Yeah, seriously, that's a mess. And that was really the other big thing to come out of Friday night was the offensive line. Like the run blocking was really an issue, Kyrie. And this goes back to something that We've been talking about all offseason with the outside zone scheme compared to what they 
traditionally did. And it felt like as a result, the outside zone scheme was not working the other night when they went to their traditional runs. It did work. So how do they sort of organize, hey, this is going to work for us long term. We got to believe in it or we got to win a game against the Dolphins in week one. How do they prioritize those two things? Well, it's interesting. I, I looked this up before we got started and be a pro football focus. It actually run more gap run plays than they have zone plays, at least during this preseason. Okay. And it's a small sample size. It's literally like what? 62 run attempts or something like that. It's not very much at the same time. When, when you look at that, it tells me that, okay, it's not going to be a wholesale change to wide zone outside zone Shanahan McVay kind of concepts. They're going to run a good amount of gap plays because that's what they do. Well, I would expect that it's probably going to be just more balanced, right? That is kind of how, how I read the situation. The thing is, I mean, they have had so little success, consistent success running on wide zones and outside zones because they're constantly just missing blocking assignments at the second level. I noticed on the first play of the night, both double teams at the point of attack failed where somebody didn't get up to the line of scrimmage. One was just, <laughs> they didn't get there. And the other one was a miscommunication. They let the guy just come straight through and he wasn't blocked. You absolutely cannot have that. That's unacceptable. The interesting thing is it's not just the, the gap runs that have been working up the middle. They've run some inside zones that have worked pretty well too. I think there's just something about being able to run between the hash marks that really works for the New England Patriots, I think it's beneficial for them to be able to get to the outside and run some of those plays, which they ran like crack toss, uh, you know, which is one of their bread and butter plays. But that's kind of, again, that's like an old, like a gap kind of power play. But it'd, it'd be beneficial for them to be able to do outside zones because it allows you to do play action off that, to do that boot action and get Mac Jones rolling the other way, which when they've done it in training camp, it looks good. Like Mac Jones operates well and receivers have been getting open down the field, but they just have to be able to block the run part and do the play action part because on both ends of that spectrum, the blocking was terrible at points during, during training camp. So, I mean, they've, they've got to get this figured out because if they can, it'll add extra arrows to their quiver offensively that they're going to need this year. Yeah, certainly. One of the things too is Mike Giardi from the NFL Network had reported that essentially I, Isaiah Wynn was scheduled to be the left tackle. Now Trent Brown is over there. And Trent Brown wasn't told in the contract negotiations that he'd be moving over to the left side. And we know, Kyrie, over the years, Trent Brown has been an issue with other organizations. Not here, of course, but that's with Dante Skarnecchia. Do you think they have an issue with Trent Brown right now in terms of his happiness level, if you will? I honestly... I think that perhaps it's a situation where, okay, in the beginning, it's probably, okay, why didn't you tell me? And, and perhaps it... You know, the contract issue might have been weighing on them. I've heard that there have been some disciplinary rumblings uh, on the underground in terms of his uh, you know, discipline, his uh, you know, attention to detail at certain points. And that's why he was held out of some practice and preseason action. So that's not the kind of thing you want to hear from Trent Brown. I do ultimately think that when it comes down to it, he's a professional enough and he has enough respect for the organization that he's going to get it together. He's going to play well. He's going to try to use this opportunity because essentially he's it's year to year with Trent Brown. I mean, he signed a, a two year deal, but it's very team friendly. So, I mean, they could move on from him after next year if they really wanted to do that. So it doesn't behoove him to, to you know kind of be disgruntled and play poorly because they really need him to be good. I mean, he's the one tackle you're not supposed to have to worry about. And then you have all the questions about Isaiah Wynn and his buy in and, and you know, coming in unprepared for camp, which some of the rumors that we've heard and being in and out of the lineup due to injury and being the subject of trade rumors that the Patriots have been calling, putting Isaiah Wynn's name out there. So they have to have Trent Brown, whether it's right tackle, left tackle, what have you. They, they just cannot afford him not being fully involved. I think that what gets me is that, you know, Dante Skarnecchia talked about him last year, just uh, you know, from retirement, right, to the media and said, like, look, Trent Brown, he, we had an understanding about how this is going to work here. And we demanded a lot from him and he stepped up. And ultimately, I think that Trent Brown will step up. Now it's just a question of what are you going to get from the rest of this offensive line? Because it's not just Trent Brown that's been struggling. I think Cole Strange has done pretty well. Uh, for the most part, but I mean, David Andrews has had some issues 
getting around on some of his run blocking assignments. Isaiah wins a question. He's been in and out. You've got Yadni Kajust and Justin Haran filling in for him. And yeah, I mean, you just can't have a situation where arguably your best offensive lineman isn't getting it done. Well, yeah, and the Isaiah Wynn thing, that was interesting to me when these rumors come out about trading him. And, like, I understand that in a vacuum, but it's not like you have guys behind him. And how are you going to trade for Isaiah Wynn and get an upgrade based on what he's put out there? So I don't see any way they can trade him, Kyrie. Nope, I don't think so. And I think that goes for somebody like Kendrick Bourne as well. Like, we might we might get into that later. But, I mean, the depth uh, at certain position groups is already being tested. I think the way that the Patriots built this team, it was to be a squad that has a high baseline, a high floor, right? And and then, you know, maybe the ceiling's capped, but you know you're going to get, a, you know, seven, eight wins out of this team because there's just a lot of solid NFL players in their starting lineups and in their depth. But when you talk about trading Isaiah Wynn and getting out of the contract a little bit earlier, if you can... I don't think you have that option. It's one thing to trade Shaq Mason and know that you've got Michael Onwenu behind him, who's a good player, and, right. and he, he's produced in, you know, kind of in backup roles or all over the offensive line. That's one thing. Or to say, okay, if we're if we're not going to be able to sign Ted Karras, we got Cole Strange, who I think, again, has played pretty solid football, and he should be just fine. I don't trust, at this point in time, Yadnik Kajust or Justin Haran to start all 17 games right. for you. If, if you get rid of Isaiah Wynn, I just, I do not <laughs> like that. I don't see that being a thing. I will say that cut down day is, is coming up on Tuesday. So there's the possibility that maybe you scour the waiver wire a little bit. You find somebody that you like um, and, and you say, okay, maybe that guy could be my backup. But as it stands right now, no, I don't, I don't see getting rid of Isaiah Wynn as being a good thing because you just don't have the depth and it's already being a, it's already a problem. Yeah. And Kyrie, speaking of that, the problem, the offensive line, you look at the quarterback and I felt on Friday night that he played like shit. I mean, that interception was atrocious. We saw a couple of those last year, but overall in camp, I felt like Mac was going to take a leap forward in year two. What have you made of his performance so far in camp and entering the season? Obviously, the sample size is small, but I think Friday night was one of the worst performances I've seen from Mac Jones in practice and wow. in a game setting. Now, I mean, he had a couple of nice plays, right? That that fourth drive, he had three completions for a first down. It's like, okay, that looks a little bit more like Mac Jones. But the overall feel for the pot, I mean, that interception was brutal. And I mean, you could say he didn't see the linebacker or what have you. But I, he, he was in a sight line, and he, and he threw it right to him. There was just no way that pass was going to be completed. I think he was trying to do too much. And, I mean, it, it might sound like hyperbole to say that was the, the worst I've seen. But, I mean, look, his pocket presence is one of the things that you're supposed to be – that he, he said after the game, he prides himself on, he knows he's not doing a good job. Those two sacks that, that you know, he had that he, that he suffered on Friday, those were his fault, in my mind, where he wandered outside of the pocket. Down and everybody blames the offensive line because, oh, look at that. Isaiah Wynn couldn't hold up. He, he, he gave it up. If Mac Jones steps in, into, up into the pocket, neither one of those sacks happens to me. And then there's a play that, again, you just don't see this from Mac Jones that ended that final drive. And again, there was a penalty on, on Devontae Parker that wipes out a touchdown. And maybe if that doesn't happen, you feel differently about it. But he turns his back on the defense, runs backwards, and then has to throw it away. I never, ever want to see quarterbacks doing that. And I never, ever, 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 ever want to see Mac Jones doing that because he cannot make a play in that situation. <laughs> and and his, his, his pocket, I mean, just his pocket presence, even in practice, has been worrisome to me. I don't like the way that he's trending. I still ultimately think that by the end of this year, we'll see Mac Jones take a step enough to where like, okay, you know what? We, we ended up in a fine place. Like we, we could see him taking command and getting better. But right now I just don't like where he's at. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, especially the one where it was when he rolled out to the left side, he just kind of spun around. I don't know what the heck he was doing on that. I never want to see that from Mac Jones ever. <laughs> Me neither, man. But another thing I noticed too, with Mac is after the game, and these are fair questions. I'm not saying they're unfair questions. He's asked, about the situation with Joe Judge and Matt Patricia. And Kyrie, I got to think from a mental perspective, he's dealing with these changes and the offensive line has not played well. He did not play well on Friday night. These Joe Judge, Matt Patricia questions, they're going to continue when we get into the season. 
after the Miami game, that's going to be the thing that everybody asks Mac about. I got to imagine this is going to be laborious and tiresome. And I feel like Bill Belichick has not done him any favors that he's going to answer all these questions all the time. No, absolutely not. And I mean, Mac Jones, I, he, he's, he's, he's a little bit of a hothead. I mean, you, you can you can see it in the frustration. He slammed a tablet after one of the drives where you know it didn't go well. I mean, he, he's he's an emotional guy, but I think that by and large, you you get him and he, he's measured. He understands this is a process and and it's going to be tough. I'm going to figure it out. There's a certain amount of defiance I feel like in the way that he answers some of these questions because he realizes that a lot of it is on him. In the end, he can make this discussion about Joe Judge and the new offensive system. He can make it go away by playing well. And when that doesn't happen, that's a reflection of him. I, I feel like that, that's kind of how he sees it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, every time that's a question asked in a negative way, it's partly because he didn't make it look good. And, you know, the, the offense isn't responding partly because this is about him, you know, playing better. And, and I think that there's a certain amount of it to where, like, he just has to play better. And I think that that's all kind of leading into it. Because I'm personally of the opinion that by the end of the year, we might look at back at this and think that, wow, this experiment was really weird. But I don't know that it's going to be this world-ending situation where, oh my goodness, they absolutely destroyed Mac Jones by having Matt Patricia call plays. I think that, that eventually it'll even out. And I think there's a lot of data that actually suggests that when you look at play calling changes over the last five years. By and large, there really isn't a whole lot of change when you look at um, you know, yards per play, points per game, and and uh, you know expected points per play. When you when you look at some of the analytics, there there's not a whole mm-hmm. lot of change on average. But I mean, right now it is laborious, and there are a lot of questions about should we just run the old offense and abandon this new stuff, and why didn't you just keep Josh McDaniels or Josh McDaniels' offense? And I mean, my take on that is that there was change was inevitable, mm-hmm. right? One way or yeah. another, things were going to change. And, and I think that they understand that. Now it's a question of making it look good. And as long as it doesn't look good, Mac Jones is going to keep being asked these questions. And I personally think he's going to keep feeling like, man, if I was playing a little bit better, y'all would be talking about this. Yeah, I'm with you. And I'm with you, too, on the fact that they needed to change something. It was time to do something. The only problem is they need buy-in from these guys. Like, they need to see it work like an actual game action so they start to buy into it. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to get to Tyquan Thornton because I believe you said that he's like the fastest guy you ever saw on the field and something along those lines, right? And it was, what, six to eight weeks now with the collarbone. So from your perspective, how good was the camp and how big of a role were they intending for him to have this year? It was better than anybody expected. And I and I was somebody who looked at it as, you know, people were just assuming that he was going to be a red shirt guy. He might not even play this year, might not have a role. And I remember watching him, going back and watching his film and being like, you know what? This guy can play a little bit. And I mean, there, there's it's certainly raw and he's small and all that. But I mean, he, he's got some things to work with. There were some very obvious reasons that the Patriots liked him, in my opinion. And then you get him into camp and he caught just about everything thrown his way. He proved that he wasn't just a downfield guy. He was getting open on just about everything, you know, in, in, in every situation and just making plays. And I think developing more nuance with his route running right before our eyes. I mean, there were times in OTAs and mini camp where they were getting on him for not using his arms enough. And it's like, you got to make a move with every part of your body, get every piece of your body involved in your route running. And by the time, you know, they, the, you know, we're midway through training camp. You could see it. 
Like he was, mm. he was putting it together daily. And anytime you put him on the field in preseason, he was doing something positive. It felt like I felt, I feel personally after, after watching him play and some of what was happening when he wasn't on the field, I think they were going to use him a lot more than, than people thought because his speed just does add a different dimension. He, he was, it didn't matter if you missed his j- a jam on, on the, he was getting by you. There was nothing you could do about it. And there was always that threat that, I mean, cornerbacks and defenses responded to it during that third drive in the second preseason game where the Patriots got that touchdown. They put Thornton and Nelson Aguilar on the field together and the offense just looked so different. I mean, mm. then when you had Devonte Parker and Jacoby Myers out there that they're just not very fast and there was no separation. Everybody was getting separation out there. There were one-on-one matchups to be had. And so I think that when he comes back, yeah, it'll probably be a little bit slower. You're not going to see him get put in there right away. But I think when he starts getting up to speed, there's just too much benefit to putting him out there for a certain percentage of snaps. It's it's too much for the opponent to think about, right? You put him on the outside, you put him in the slot, and you have them run down the field. He's on you before you know it. You can't help but pay attention to him. And that also gives you extra you know, freedom for Nelson Aguilar to operate. I'm, I, I think that We've seen hints of Nelson Aguilar, like he'll still be fine as long as they're able to continue moving him around and they don't pigeonhole him into an X receiver thing. But man, if they're able to put him and Tyquan Thornton on the field together and have them both run at safeties and corners, it could be a problem. Well, and now, Kyrie, you got me feeling even worse because now I'm like, what would have happened if Tyquan Thornton was just ready to begin the season? So that's unfortunate. I am excited about the future of Thornton. Maybe the Patriots finally hit on a receiver, of course. But you know me, I've been driving the Kendrick Bourne breakout season bandwagon. And then I don't know what that. Yeah, I mean, I I referenced the yak per reception. And uh, the other night, a couple of nice catches after Myers got a little bit banged up there. So building off that, I mean, what has happened to Bourne? I don't understand this. You know, it's, I think some of it is just behind the scenes stuff or like things that, you know, perhaps we're not catching. I know there were a couple of wrong routes run during mini camp. Um, he missed a little bit of time. He came back and there was a little bit of rust where, you know, he ran the wrong route. Quarterbacks got on him a little bit. And then that fateful Tuesday joint practice against the Panthers where he got screamed at by Belichick. I mean, he was, it was right in front of us really, um, for an equipment violation that, that happened where the, the, uh, uh, referees pulled him off the field and Belichick screaming at him. If you're not going to make plays, don't bother being out here. And then not two minutes later, he gets ejected for fighting him and Christian Wilkerson both get taken off the field. And that felt like the beginning of the Kendrick Bourne is squarely in the doghouse. And they can't afford to have that with Tyquan Thornton being hurt now. I mean, I've seen Kendrick Bourne being brought up as, oh yeah, potential surprise cuts in New England. Like that could happen or Whoa. trade rumors. And, and I, I'm flabbergasted by the fact that we are talking about that after a month ago, or not even two, two months ago, talking about him as, is he going to be wide receiver one for this team? Ultimately, I, I hope that this is a situation where a little bit like last year, he was a little slow to, to grasp the offense fully. And he admitted that at the beginning of the year, and then things picked up for him towards the end of the year, and they started using him a bit more. I would hope that, that it's going to be a little bit more like that. They can get over what issues they have right now, and whatever buy-in from Kendrick Ford you need to see is what you get, because at this point, you can't lose any more playmakers in your wide receiver room, okay? Losing Tyquan Thornton was enough. Yeah, I'm with you, man. And if this does happen and he has a bad season, I'm going to look worse than him because I'm the one that's been so take committed for this for so long. So selfishly, I need this guy to get on track. So, Kyrie, we have a voicemail line here. and We got a we got a Patriots question. You down to hear this? Let's do it. All right. So the number is 617-396-7172. Again, 617-396-7172. Let's get to this one. Hey, um, I would love for you guys to talk a little bit about the linebacking situation. I, I feel like uh, strong athletic backers have been part of the DNA for so long, and I'm worried we don't have that anymore. I'm just wondering what you think the prospects are for developing that this season. Thanks. Okay, that's a great question, Kyrie, and it brings me to my question to you. What the hell happened to Cameron McGrone? I thought he got the red shirt year coming back from the injury and he was going to be that sideline to sideline guy. What happened to McGrone? I mean, quite frankly, he just hasn't done a whole lot in practice. I mean, you, you see him get lost in coverage sometimes. It happened in preseason where he gets caught behind a play and, and it's just like, you're right there. I mean, just just 
go. And I mean, some people will point to the fact that in, in the first preseason game, he had like three near interceptions where he's around the ball. There were points where like, okay, I could see that he's running to the football and, and, and kind of flying around. But I mean, he's missing gaps in the run game. He just, he just doesn't have it right now. And I think some of it is just inexperience, honestly. Yeah. He hasn't played a lot of football at the NFL level because he missed all of last year. So in a way, I mean, you could talk about him being in the building and what have you, but this is essentially his rookie year in the NFL because he missed last year. So I think I would hope that some of it is just going to be experience. And, and as he gets a little bit more game run, it's going to look a little bit more natural because you can see the speed that he does have. But I mean, right now, all of those linebackers are, they are, they are actually fully ahead of him in terms of how they're playing on the football field. But when we're talking about linebackers, let, let me, let me say something I don't understand. <laughs> Jelani Tavai getting starts opposite Jawan Bentley. He's just not a good player. Like he's, he's not, he's not a starting NFL linebacker. Uh, let me, let me say he's not a starting NFL linebacker. I, I mean, I've been talking about this with a couple of people. In, you know, around the team. And I just, they, they love him. And I mean, part of it is because he was drafted by Matt Patricia. He was a second round pick of the lions during the, during Matt Patricia's tenure in Detroit. And they bring him over as, as a, you know, as a, a free agent signing. And he, he got, he got cut. So he was just out there on the waiver wire and they bring him in. And Bill Belichick's talking about him as a, a potential four down player that, that he's going to get significant snaps at linebacker and be a course special teamer. I'm good with Jelani to buy as a special teamer, Mac Wilson and Raquan McMillan are easily better than anything that he's done. So I have to, I have to say, if, if they're starting Jelani Tavai, who honestly on, on most other teams, you might not even roster that guy. He might actually be the 53rd man of the team that straight up might not dress. You know what I mean? But they're, yeah. they're talking about giving him a bigger role. You don't got to do that. I mean, I've seen People say like, okay, maybe Mac Wilson isn't getting as much burn as you would think because uh, you know, he, he's just kind of a bull in the china shop and he's out there running around, uh, you know, and he, he's and he's just running fast, but he's not playing the way they want him to play. I'll tell you what, though, I would rather Mac Wilson be on the field and be wrong and fast than Jelani Tavai do just about anything that he's doing out there right now. <laughs> well, hey, Patricia can bring him in, but he can't bring in. Trey Flowers, who the Patriots fans would maybe like to see that guy back. That's Kyrie Thompson from WEI, the first in Foxborough podcast. Kyrie, thanks so much, man. We really appreciate it. Anytime, my man. You know, we we ever since we got that shout out on the ringer for our, our Saturday football talk, I mean, I, I was I was eyeing this as soon as you got this role. So thanks for reaching out. All right. I appreciate it, man. Have a good one. All right, we have one more call to get to, but before we do that, I wanted to get into the Gallinari situation from over the weekend. I don't know about you, but I'm watching the Red Sox on Saturday afternoon, the game that they won, not the game that they freaking got killed by today. Their bullpen sucks. That's a different story. I mean, at this point, it doesn't really matter what the Red Sox do. I mean, I guess the only good thing would be if Heim Bloom gets a better draft pick. He'd be happy with that. But the news coming down on Twitter that Gallo injures his knee. And if you saw the pictures on Twitter or if you saw the play itself, you thought, oh, he's done for the season. This fucking sucks. The Celtics make a nice signing in the offseason and he's going to be done for the year. Luckily, they dodge a bullet tears his meniscus. Now, of course, he's going to be out for a little bit of time here. But the bottom line is he's going to be able to play the season, which is major for the Celtics team, because I really like this signing. I know he's older entering his 34 year old season. But you look at some of the stuff last year. He shot 38 percent from three on 4.5 attempts per game. But the past years before that, 2021, he's at 40.6 percent, 19 and 20 is at 40.5 percent. Last year is catch and shoot threes, 41.9%. And this was an issue for the Celtics. Remember, the Celtics last year really struggled in terms of shooting threes, especially catch and shoot threes. How many times were we watching the postseason and these Celtics players just couldn't hit a wide open three? It was an issue all postseason long. Gallo on wide open threes. That means the closest defender at least six feet away, 45.5%, 45 for 99 the Celtics as a team last year were 19th on wide open threes. Wide open, no defender. Within six feet, they shot just 37.6%. So he helps there. And the other thing is this. I know his shortcomings defensively, but he's not as easy to take advantage of in the regular season because nobody targets guys in the regular season like they do in the postseason. And he's big. He's six foot eight. It's not like he's a little small diminutive point guard like Isaiah Thomas. No disrespect to IT. Love the guy and all that. But it's not as easy to take advantage of that guy until you get to the postseason. But the other thing is just 
when he's on the court, his offenses have been much better. You look at Gallo in terms of when he was on the court last year with the Hawks, they had a 118.83 rating. The Jazz led the league at just over 117. When he was off, they were still pretty good. But even with Trey Young off the court, they played at a 113.87 offensive rating with Gallo and Trey off. Only five teams were better. I'm not saying it's all because of Gallo. My point is that type of shooter, that guy that spaces the floor, helps your offense. And if the Celtics needed anything this offseason, it was spacing and it was playmaking. They got the playmaking with Brogdon and Gallo helps provide some of the shooting during the regular season. The past four seasons with Gallo on the court, his teams have played better than the league's best offenses. That's how good his teams have been. I go back to OC 1920, OKC rather. They had a 118.53 rating with him on the court offensively, 103.20 with him off. That's plus 15.33. So that type of stuff, flamethrowers, shooting, spacing, all that fucking matters in the NBA. The Celtics didn't really have that. And even if you look at some of the guys that hit shots for them, when you look at Grant Williams, when you look at Al Horford, those guys could hit threes, especially Al did it in the postseason. And Grant did it in the Milwaukee series, but then he forgot how to play for a series or two in terms of his shooting. Guys actually respect Gallinari. So when Jason Tatum goes to his left, those guys aren't going to be cheating off the wing. And if they do, he's going to kick it to Gallo, and Gallo's actually going to hit a three, as would be evident by those wide-open three numbers. With Grant and Al, they were so streaky. So just having that guy that you can respect is so major for this team. And the other small part of it is just, okay, Grant Williams, now you have some competition for playing time every once in a while. Obviously, Grant's more equipped to defend positions in the postseason. I get all that. But Grant was feeling himself a little bit too much last year. The Curry nickname, the Batman stuff. I do like that there's some competition for Grant Williams in terms of Danilo Gallinari. All right, we'll finish up next with another call. Hey, this is Matt in Boston. Really enjoy your show. Um, I have really appreciated your targeted and accurate criticisms of Heim Bloom. Um, he is, it's well-deserved. And I'm just looking forward to your um, doing that for the Bruins management, Don Sweeney and Cam Neely. I think they've done a terrible job. And I don't think they've done well uh, since I don't think the Bruins have done well since Shirelli, basically, and he wasn't that great either. But towards the end, anyway, um, I'd be more mad about them losing draft picks on these busted free agents if they didn't just waste them anyway. All right, thanks for doing what you do. Yeah, I appreciate it, Matt. So it is interesting, right? Because we felt like after the season, Cassidy definitely wasn't going to be on the hot seat, but clearly he was. Now I understand there were some interpersonal things going on with him, but. If you were going to blame anything in terms of somebody that needed their walking papers, it was going to be somebody in the front office and not the head coach of the team. And I understand all the stuff with the players and all that, but it did feel like they moved on from the wrong guy. All right, we'll be back on Tuesday. As always, you can leave us a voicemail. That number is 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jesse Lopez and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast. And we'll chat in about 48 hours. <laughs>